The Lord is King, let the earth rejoice. Uh, welcome to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold, for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. And today we're going to go to the VMPR question box. Talk a little bit uh, about a couple of questions that have come in. One a, about the Feast of the Immaculate Conception, which we talked about last week. And uh, also I'm uh, going to talk about what every Catholic needs to know about the prayer to St. Michael. And then later on in the program, we're going to talk about why the official liturgical language of the Roman Catholic Church is still Latin, and what was the traditional understanding of what it meant to participate in the Mass. But uh, this Sunday, to begin, was the third Sunday of Advent, known as Gaudete Sunday, from the first word of the introit, Gaudete, which means rejoice, even though Advent is traditionally a penitential season a time of preparation for the coming of the Divine Infant at Christmas and for the coming of our uh, risen Christ as judge, the third Sunday reminds us to rejoice always. Therefore, on this Sunday, as on Latari Sunday in Lent, things lighten up a little bit. The priest trades his violet vestments for rose-colored vestments, which are representative of the joy that shines through this season of preparation, reminds us what we're preparing for. So we're going to begin with the readings for Gaudete Sunday in the extraordinary form of the Mass, with the epistle first, which is from Philippians 4, verses 4 through 7. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again I say, rejoice. Let your kindness be shown to everyone. The Lord is near. Do not worry about anything, but present your needs to God in prayer and petition with thanksgiving. Then the peace of God, which is beyond all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Joy is the great secret of Christians, the sign that the faith has triumphed over all fears, and it's a a normal fruit of a spiritual life. Because the peace of God is more profound than any kind of peace that the world can give or, or that the human spirit can attain just on its own. And to rejoice in the Lord always means to remember the grace by which God called us to the true faith and gave us the hope of eternal salvation, and even to rejoice in our tribulations and adversities for the Lord's sake, as Paul did. Uh, It also encourages us to give good example by living a modest and edifying life, to fix our thoughts and desires on God, who will never fail us, if we make our needs known to him by prayer and supplication, and to give him thanks for all the benefits that we receive. Now, this epistle was written by St. Paul when he was in prison, and that reminds us that in times of need and sorrow and dejection, the best means to relieve our troubled hearts is prayer, in which we give ourselves up to God's love and mercy, as Anna, the mother of the prophet Samuel, did. Uh, and Susanna when she was falsely accused and condemned to death, or as Daniel did in the lion's den, or uh, St. Joseph the Patriarch when he was sold into slavery, and all the many servants of God throughout uh, uh, Scripture and history. They all prayed to God to be delivered from their afflictions, and they received divine help and consolation. So St. James tells us, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. And St. Paul, who encourages us in this epistle not to be worried, literally, 
not to be solicitous. And solicitous means worried or concerned. So what he's saying is don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, to let your requests be known to God. So Gaudete Sunday is meant to remind us that whenever you're sad or discouraged, to follow St. Paul's example and lift up your soul to God in prayer. And now the Holy Gospel for Gaudete Sunday, taken from John chapter 1, verses 19 through 28. This is the testimony offered by John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed. He did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. Then they asked him, Who then are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, No. Therefore they said to him, Who are you so that you, uh, we may have an answer to give to those who sent us? What do you have to say about yourself? He replied in the words of the prophet Isaiah, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Make straight the way of the Lord. Some Pharisees were present in this group and they asked him, Why then are you baptizing? if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet. John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you there is one whom you do not know, the one who is coming after me. I am not worthy to loosen the strap of his sandal. This took place in Bethany beyond the Jordan where John was baptizing. And thus far the words of the Holy Gospel. So why did the Jews send messengers to ask John the Baptist who he was? Well, it's because his, baptiz- his baptizing, his preaching, uh, along with his life of hardship and penance, made such an impression that many people uh, took him for more than an ordinary prophet, but thought he was the Messiah himself. Further, the Jews believed that Elijah, or one of the other prophets, would return to earth to prepare the way for the coming of Christ. And, and, and that's why St. John denied that he was the Christ when... Uh, or when he denied that he was the Christ, they asked, are you Elijah or that other prophet? But John said he wasn't that prophet, only the voice of one crying in the wilderness. He said so out of humility, but he told the truth. Since he was not the prophet that was predicted by Moses in Deuteronomy 18.15, because Revelation tells us that Enoch and Elijah will return before the second coming of Christ at the final judgment. And that's why our Lord himself said that John the Baptist had come in the spirit of Elijah and was, as John himself testified, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. So the question for us is how do we make straight the way of the Lord in our lives? Well, by sincere penance, which consists not merely in going to confession, but in making resolutions but in bringing forth fruits worthy of penance, as our Lord says in Matthew chapter 3, verse 8, and in a weird coincidence also in Luke chapter 3, verse 8. Uh, To bring forth fruits worthy of penance, we must uh, do our best to make amends for what's past and use all possible means of uh, avoiding committing those sins again in the future. Uh, We used to tell our kids when they were little, Sorry means you're not going to do it again. (laughs) We must love and serve God as much or more um, 
than we loved and served the world before our conversion. You know, you have to love God more than you love the sin that you're confessing. And, and there's still more to learn from this gospel. It's very rich. Uh, for one thing, to always speak the truth, uh, like John the Baptist, not from a desire to appear greater or, or better than we really are, but in particular to repent, to sincerely turn back to God. Um, for example, before confession, to make a thorough examination of conscience, to ask yourself, who art thou? You know, who am I? How do I stand before God? How do I really treat my neighbor? Do I really follow the commandments? And so on. And so we also learn from St. John the Baptist, above all, to be humble. Because he could have passed for the Messiah if he'd wanted to, but he didn't. In fact, he considered himself unworthy even to loose the strap of Christ's sandal. And what does that mean? Well, in ancient Israel, to wash someone's feet was the work of a slave. But we know that Jesus will come to John to be baptized, right? to be immersed. And we know that St. John's reaction, you come to me, I need to be baptized by you. So what St. John the Baptist is saying <clears throat> is that he was so far from being worthy to baptize Christ that he was unworthy even to wash his feet, uh, unworthy even to untie his shoe. And that lets you know why Peter was so scandalized when Jesus went to wash the apostles' feet at the Last Supper. And that's no nonsense. All right, after the break, when we come back, we're going to talk about um, the prayer to St. Michael. And before that, uh, we actually have a, uh, a question about the Immaculate Conception, why it is a holy day of obligation some places and not others. But uh, before we uh, go to the break, I just wanted to remind you that next month, which is coming up quick, January the 14th, 2023, Virgin Most Powerful Radio will be hosting an evangelization conference here at the Sacred Heart Chapel in Covina. Uh, it's a special event. It features uh, speakers Johnny Romero, brother of our own Jesse Romero, and the man who literally wrote the book on lay evangelization, our own Terry Barber. Admission is $35 for a single and $60 for a married couple. Online registration is open now at vmpr.org, or you can call the office Toll-free, 877-526-2151, to register by phone for the January 14th Virgin Most Powerful Radio Evangelization Conference. And I know that um, it's Christmas time and and money's tight, but it's well to get uh, your registration in early. And that's especially true of our other big conference that's coming up in uh, March of next year, which is going to be here before you know it. The 25th and 26th of March, 2023, it's our annual Spiritual Warfare Conference. And this year, we're going to have our uh, same lineup that we had last year. Father Chad Rippinger, the uh, exorcist, our own Jesse Romero will be Master of Ceremonies. Uh, Dr. Dan Schneider and Kyle Clement from Libra Cristo Deliverance Ministry. Plus, we're going to have a special guest, uh, Bishop Joseph Strickland, will be joining us for the Spiritual Warfare Conference. This one's a little more expensive. It's $95 for a single, $180 for a married couple, but it's a two-day event. And registration is open now at vmpr.org or call the office 877-526-2151. And we will be right back with lots more No-Nonsense Catholic right after this.
Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. The other day, Virgin Most Powerful Radio received an email with the subject line, Why is December 8th not a holy day of obligation in some Catholic circles slash calendars? Uh, email begins, Your answer to my question could prove a useful topic on one or more of your shows. So here goes. Our listener writes, I have always understood December 8th, Feast of the Immaculate Conception, to be a holy day of obligation. I was surprised to find that it is not even celebrated in some, question mark, traditionalist Catholic calendars as a holy day of obligation where mass attendance is required. Why is that? I am curious to know the answer. Check with your SSPX, SSPV, CMRI friends to confirm. It goes on, it's interesting to note that the Orthodox schismatics also do not celebrate the Feast of the Immaculate Conception on December 8th. Thanks to the Catholic Church, a few Catholic countries have a public holiday on the Feast of the Immaculate Conception. All right, so he makes some points, and and there's a, a little confusion to clear up, and we'll get to all of that. But to answer the basic question, the feasts and solemnities that are observed as holy days of obligation differ from country to country. For example, the Feast of the Immaculate Conception is a holy day of obligation in France and Ireland and the United States, but not in Canada, England, or Germany. Uh, The feast only became a holy day of obligation in this country after Mary, under her title of the Immaculate Conception, was named Patroness of the United States by the First Plenary Council of Baltimore back in 1846. Accordingly, the Society of St. Pius X does observe the Immaculate Conception as a holy day of obligation in the United States, but not in England or Germany, etc. So it depends... uh, partially on where your calendar that you were looking at was generated as to which days are going to show up as holy days of obligation. Now, the sorry, rented lips. The Congregation of Mary Immaculate Queen and the Society of St. Pius V that are mentioned in the email, those are set of Acantus groups. But I presume that um, those groups in the United States consider December the 8th a holy day of obligation because the pronouncement by the U.S. bishops was approved by Rome in 1847, which is well before the Sedificantists believed the Holy See became vacant. Of course, some St. Pius V Mass centers, for example, they don't have enough priests to go around, and so they don't even have Mass every Sunday. And many Sedificantists consider it a sin, quote-unquote, to attend the Novus Ordo Mass under any circumstances, or even a traditional Latin Mass, that's celebrated in union with Pope Francis. So it's reasonable to assume that they consider themselves dispensed from the obligation when they can't attend one of their own masses. You know, all that said, set of a cantism is an error of such magnitude that uh, it will no doubt support all manner of other errors and justifications for what are, you know, objectively sins. Now, As to the comments regarding our separated brethren, the the, the Orthodox Church, and uh, our interlocutor made some remarks that I did not deign to to repeat on the air, Um, history shows that a feast commemorating the conception of the Blessed Virgin was first celebrated in the East, and as far back as the 5th century, long before a comparable feast was celebrated in the West. The Orthodox Church's uh, um, understanding of the doctrine of the sinlessness of Mary is somewhat different from the Roman Catholic Church's understanding uh, because they naturally don't accept 
the dogma of the Immaculate Conception as it was pronounced in 1854, which is centuries after they went into schism. However, the Orthodox most certainly do not deny the sinlessness of Mary, and they do celebrate a feast of the conception of the Blessed Virgin as Mother of God in the womb of St. Anne, but they celebrate it on December the 9th, and it is not a uh, holy day of obligation. Now, in the West, the, the first celebration of the conception of Mary uh, was done by Catholics in England in the Middle Ages, in the 11th century. Uh, and then it was suppressed after the Norman Conquest of 1066. Now, why would the Normans suppress the feast? Well, the reason is that while all Catholics have always agreed that Mary was born without original sin, there was controversy in the Middle Ages um, surrounding how her prenatal salvation was actually accomplished. We talked about this last week, that even great saints like Bernard of Clairvaux and Thomas Aquinas and St. Bonaventure um, couldn't reconcile the idea of the Immaculate Conception with St. Paul's admonition that, you know, uh, in Adam all have sinned. So, you know, Romans 3, 23, 5, 12, etc. And so they concluded that Mary must have been freed from original sin at some point, even if it was only an instant after her conception. Now, it was only the theological formulation of Blessed John Scotus in the 13th century that saw Mary become universally understood as being preserved from all stain of original sin from the moment of her conception in the Western Church. Pardon me. And so it was only in 1476 that December 8th, uh, the Feast of Mary's Conception, became universal in the Latin Church. However, the words Immaculate Conception do not appear in any liturgical book until after Pope Pius IX's dogmatic pronouncement of 1854. So before that, December the 8th was simply called the Feast of the Conception of the Blessed Virgin Mary. So, to sum up, the Immaculate Conception is a Catholic dogma. It has been officially pronounced as a part of the deposit of faith from the beginning. The requirement to attend Mass on the Solemnity of the Immaculate Conception, December 8th, is not universal but applies only to those countries where the bishops have proclaimed it a holy day of obligation. And even then, local bishops have the right to dispense their flock from attending Mass on December the 8th for serious reasons. In the Novus Ordo calendar, the celebration of the Solemnity is moved to the following Monday if December 8th falls on a Sunday of Advent. Uh, but, however, the obligation is not transferred. So you meet your obligation by going to the Sunday Mass of Advent if it falls on December the 8th, and then they will have the Feast of the Immaculate Conception on the 9th, but you're not obliged to attend. Now, before the imposition of the new Mass, the Feast of the Immaculate Conception was observed on December 8th, whether it fell on a Sunday of Advent or not. And so that's everything you need to know about that. Now, question box uh, number two. This was not officially a, a VMPR question, but one that came in to me. Um, and I don't know about you, but I love the prayer to St. Michael the Archangel. St. Michael the Archangel, defend us in battle. Be our protection against the wickedness and snares of the devil. May God rebuke him, we humbly pray. And do thou, O Prince of the Heavenly Host, by the power of God, cast into hell Satan and all the evil spirits who prowl about the world, seeking the ruin of souls. Amen. Uh, and there are various uh, um, 
variants in the English translation from place to place and over time might start Holy Michael or Blessed Michael instead of Saint Michael, might be protect us in battle or be our safeguard. Um, the wickedness and snares might be the malice uh, and snares thrust into hell instead of cast into hell. You know, wicked spirits instead of evil spirits, all the other evil spirits, right? These minor variants, but they're all translations of the same Latin prayer. Okay, so it's the same in Latin, and there's various English translations. Now, <clears throat> somebody contacted me last week with the assertion that this prayer to St. Michael the Archangel is not the original prayer. Uh, rather, they said Pope Leo's intercessory prayer, having been prayed after every Mass for 50 years, was suddenly changed without explanation in the year 1934 and was replaced by an abbreviated prayer of St. Michael, which uh, they contend is the familiar one that I just recited. Still a powerful prayer, they say, but just a shadow of the original. Now, I asked, <laughs> well, first off, when I first heard this, I, as, as gently as possible, said, I'm sorry, but I call nonsense. Uh, and full disclosure, I used the special word for nonsense that you find in Webster's between Bulwark and Bullfinch. Okay, I call nonsense. Uh, and I asked, do you really expect me to believe that the entire church, every Catholic in the world, prayed the prayer to St. Michael after every low mass for 50 years, and then they all simply accepted a different version without question and without explanation, and apparently, uh, while simultaneously experiencing collective amnesia to the effect that no one anywhere ever mentioned it. I said, I'm sorry, that just it doesn't pass the smell test. And fortunately, I did not have to rely on logical argument alone, which is becoming less and less effective in our rather irrational age. Uh, and the reason is that I was able to supply the smoking gun. As you might imagine, I have a nice collection of Catholic books, old Catholic books, including several hand missiles and prayer books. Most of them reprints, but some of them genuine antiques. And as it happens, I uh, have uh, two pertinent, pertinent antique prayer books, one that was published in the United States in 1920, and another published in the UK in 1905. So predating 1934 by 19 and, uh, or 14 and 29 years, respectively. And both of those books include the Leonine Prayers, a.k.a. the Prayers After Low Mass. And lo and behold, the St. Michael Prayer was the familiar one that we all know and love. And so I sent along, you know, photographs, uh, uh, some, some proof, and the matter was settled, or <laughs> at least I hope so. And then I asked for the source of the claim. And uh, even though it was promised, I was promised that information, it was not forthcoming. However, um, I think it took all of a minute to perform a, an internet search uh, with the, um, you know, uh, uh, the term St. Michael and the year 1934. And precisely one result included both criteria, which was an article from several years ago uh, that appeared on a website that promotes some obscure private revelation which need not be mentioned. And the article uh, uh, concerns the, the popular but likely apocryphal anecdote, anecdote to the effect that on October 13, 1884, Pope Leo XIII collapsed after celebrating Holy Mass. Here's the, the rather breathless uh, description. 
The priests and even cardinals rushed to his side, fearing the worst. The Pope rose and was visibly shaken. He looked traumatized and rushed back to his apartment where he immediately wrote a prayer of Leonine exorcism, the prayer to St. Michael the Angel to protect us in battle. He then mandated this prayer be said after every Mass from that point forth. And then the, the article alleges that the reason for the Pope's collapse and the inspiration for the St. Michael prayer was a mystical ecstasy wherein Pope Leo, quote-unquote, overheard a conversation between God and the devil, wherein Satan was granted a period of a hundred years as a time of testing for humanity. Uh, the article goes on, quote, In 1934, however, Pope Leo's intercessory prayer was changed without explanation. It was replaced by an abbreviated prayer to St. Michael, which is still powerful but not as strong. Is this, in fact, true? Well, we're going to find out the answer, and obviously it's no, but we're going to find out why and a little more about this prayer when we come back with lots more no-nonsense Catholic here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Stay with us, and we'll be right back after these messages. Welcome back. Okay, so to finish this article um, that we uh, started at the end of the last segment, which um, contends that the prayer to St. Michael that used to be recited after low mass was changed without explanation in 1934, the article concludes with the words, Pope Leo XIII's mystical experience, the original prayer to St. Michael, and the eventual suppression of that prayer remains one of the most interesting and controversial events relating to the present situation in which the true Catholic Church finds itself, unquote. Now, there are obvious issues with um, the contentions made in this article. And, and you can see it, it, first off, in the little details. The St. Michael prayer was not mandated to be said after every Mass, but only as part of the prayers after low Mass. And precisely what the author might mean by the true Catholic Church, I won't hazard a guess. But most worrisome is this unsubstantiated claim that the quote-unquote real St. Michael prayer was suppressed in 1934 without explanation. In logic, this is known as a bold-faced lie. Consequently, there is an ancient axiom, quad gratis asseritur, gratis negatur. What is freely asserted can be freely denied. In other words, when somebody makes an outrageous claim like this, unless they uh, provide some compelling evidence to back it up, you're free to just reject it. Now, I suspect this particular uh, falsehood may have begun as a simple error. There is a quote-unquote long form of the St. Michael prayer, which is actually part of a, a larger rite of exorcism composed by Leo XIII. And I recall hearing some tapes by Jerry Maditix like 20 years ago, uh, and they were recorded uh, he, after he had gone trad, but before he became a set of a cantist. Uh, and, and he referred to this longer form of the St. Michael prayer as, quote-unquote, the original version of the prayer. You know, the original version of the shorter prayer that we say after Mass. But a little historical research shows that that is not the case. So let's look at the timeline. The Leonine prayers, or as it says in one of my old missals, the prayers ordered by His Holiness Pope Leo XIII to be recited after low Mass, uh, they were instituted in the year 1884. 
and the Leonine prayers originally included the Hail Holy Queen, followed by God Our Refuge, then three Hail Marys, and then finally the ejaculation, Most Sacred Heart of Jesus, have mercy on us, repeated three times. So there was a threat to the Church at the time, which was the Italian government's campaign against the Papal States. So the intention of Leo XIII's prayer after low Mass was the defense of the independence of the Holy See and asking God's help for a satisfactory solution to the loss of the Pope's temporal sovereignty, uh, which was considered requisite for the effective exercise of his spiritual authority. And then the prayer to St. Michael was added uh, to the Leonine prayers two years later in 1886. This, again, the one and only original St. Michael prayer. Now, as an aside, the Pope's status as a temporal ruler was restored in 1929 by the creation of uh, Vatican City as an independent state. So the following year, Pope Pius XI ordered that a new intention for the prayers after low mass uh, should be, quote, to permit tranquility and freedom to profess the faith to be restored to the afflicted people of Russia all of the requests of Our Lady of Fatima. <clears throat> However, it was in 1890, four years after the introduction of the original St. Michael prayer, six years after its composition, um, that um, a different prayer to St. Michael was included as part of an exorcism formula that was published in the Acta Sancta Sedis for use by bishops and by those priests, and only those priests, authorized to perform exorcisms. So to any of those priests or bishops who devoutly recited the formula daily, Pope Leo XIII granted a partial indulgence on each day and a plenary indulgence if they continued for a whole month. All right, the formula, called the Exorcism Against Satan and the Apostate Angels, opens with some verses from the Psalms, then presents a long prayer to St. Michael, followed immediately by the actual prayers of exorcism. Uh, this exorcism formula, which is incorporate, which uh, incorporates the prayer to St. Michael, or that, that different prayer to St. Michael, was inserted in the 1898 edition of the Roman Ritual, so ten years a- or eight years after it was originally published. Now, needless to say, this prayer was first published after the familiar prayer to St. Michael and was never recited by lay people after Mass in any place at any time. However, the exorcism formula may have contributed to the false claim that the prayer to St. Michael was changed. And that's because in the year 1902, when Leo XIII was still Pope, the new edition of the Roman ritual considerably shortened that exorcism formula as a whole, and in particular the prayer to St. Michael within it. And that may account for the false notion that the prayer to St. Michael recited after low mass was the prayer that got abbreviated. In any case, the exorcism formula is for the exclusive use of bishops and their officially appointed exorcists. And to that effect, to, to, in 18, or not, rather not 18, 1985, Joseph Cardinal Ratzinger, as prefect for the Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith, wrote to the bishops recalling the need to maintain the canonical norm that exorcisms are to be performed only by select priests who've been authorized by the local ordinary. And it is therefore illicit for other Catholics, lay people, or even other priests to use the formula of exorcism against Satan and the fallen angels, extracted from the one published by order of Pope Leo XIII, 
still less to use the entire text of this exorcism. Then, uh, in 1999, the Holy See issued a revised version of the Rite of Exorcisms, which includes, for optional use, that 1902 prayer to St. Michael. The 1890 version of the prayer is not included. However, the new book also includes the text of the 1886 Leonine prayers, the the ones that we were used to reciting after low mass, as one of the, quote, supplications that the faithful can use in their struggle against the powers of darkness. So, the Church still endorses the Leonine prayers, including the familiar prayer to St. Michael, for private use by laypeople. Now, to sum up then, the original prayer to St. Michael, quote-unquote, is the one that we all know, the familiar one, and it was never changed with or without explanation in 1934 or at any other time. However, the 1890 Leonine exorcism in the Roman ritual was shortened in 1902, and the prayers after low mass, of course, were then uh, officially suppressed by Pope Paul VI in 1964 in the document Inter Ecumenici, which went into force in March of 1965. So be that as it may, uh, um, we have a modern bishop here in California, Bishop Kevin Van, has reinstated the recitation of the prayer to St. Michael after every mass, celebrated in the Diocese of Orange. And, of course, Catholics everywhere are encouraged to make use of Pope Leo XIII's prayer to St. Michael the Archangel in their own private devotions, and that's no nonsense. All right, maybe I I might be accused of killing a flea with a sledgehammer on that, but I wanted to take the time to do it because there are lots and lots of these spurious claims, uh, and I think that sometimes they give traditionalists a bad name because they're, they're, they're uh, promulgated, they're, they're, they're shared from you know, person to person to person without the necessary substantiation, okay? And that's important. All right, to our final topic today, um, it's about Latin as the liturgical language of the Church. Speaking of old books, I have a, a classic work by Father Michael Mueller, called The Holy Sacrifice of the Mass, in which he says, and I quote, The celebration of Mass and the administration of the sacraments in the Latin tongue form for some Protestants a subject of surprise, for others of complaint, as if there was something unnatural or wrong in the practice. If he were alive today, no doubt he would be surprised to discover that this is no longer just the objection of some Protestants, but the majority opinion of most Novus Ordo Catholics. And the one obvious difference between the Old and New Mass is the language, that uh, the Latin has been traded for the local vernacular. And I've often spoken about how the Second Vatican Council did not call for the elimination of Latin in the Mass, uh, and on the contrary, it called for its retention. And uh, how the Council Fathers' great desire to promote active participation led them to declare that even the faithful should be able to sing or pray the Gloria, the Credo, the Sanctus, the Agnus Dei, all of the responses. In other words, everything that the altar boys in the Scola used to say or sing in Latin. So uh, this was seconded by Pope Paul VI when he promulgated the Novus Ordo Missae. And, uh, and we should also mention that Pope St. John XXIII, the Pope who called the Second Vatican Council in the first place, promulgated an encyclical on the use and study of Latin in 1962, which was the very year that Vatican II opened. So 
it's interesting to me to to note that many of the arguments that were put forth by John the Twenty Third and uh, Sapentia, I don't remember the Latin name. It is, is uh, encyclical on Latin. Uh, Viterum Sapientia, I think it is. Um, anyway, many of the arguments that he put forth for the use of Latin in 1962 are the same ones that Father Mueller used against the objections of the Protestants some 80 or more years earlier. He wrote, it, It's been said that the use of any language in itself is immaterial, but the Church has widely, wisely ordered the Latin tongue only to be used in the Mass and in the administration of the sacraments for several reasons. And we're going to talk about what those reasons are. First off, Father Mueller says the Latin language was used by St. Peter when he first said Mass at Rome. It was the language in which that prince of the apostles drew up the liturgy, which together with the knowledge of the gospel, he or his successors, the popes, imparted to the different peoples of Italy, France, Belgium, Spain, Portugal, England, Ireland, Scotland, Germany, Hungary, Poland, etc., from the time of the Apostles down, Latin has been invariably used at the altar through the western parts of Christendom, though their inhabitants very frequently did not understand the language. The Catholic Church, and I love this, through an aversion to innovations, carefully continues to celebrate her liturgy in the same tongue which apostolic men and saints have used for similar purpose during more than 18 centuries. That was in 1874. We'll come back and talk about today, right after these messages, as we continue with lots more No-Nonsense Catholic, right here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Stay with us. Welcome back. Continuing now with the similarities between the 1874 book, The Holy Sacrifice of the Mass, and Pope St. John XXIII's encyclical Viterum Sapientia, uh, Pope John made precisely the same pope as Father Mueller when he said unchangeable um, dogmas require an unchangeable language. The Catholic Church cannot change because it is the Church of God who is immutable that is to say, unchangeable. Consequently, the language of the Church must also be unchangeable. Pope John also concurred with the teaching that a universal Church requires a universal language. <clears throat> Father Mueller likewise said, Mass is in, said in Latin because a universal Church requires a universal language. The Catholic Church is the same in every clime, in every nation, and consequently its language must be always and everywhere the same to secure uniformity in her service. In other words, to be sure that the Mass is identical everywhere. Father also put forth the biblical teaching <clears throat> that variety of languages is a punishment. It was a punishment of God, a consequence of sin. And it was inflicted by God that the human race might be dispersed over the face of the earth. And the Holy Catholic Church, the Immaculate Spouse of Jesus Christ, was established for the express purpose of destroying sin and reuniting all of mankind. Consequently, she always spoke the same language all over the earth. And also, like John XXIII, Father Mueller made the case that it is a well-known fact that the meaning of, the words, meaning of words change in the course of time, just through everyday usage. He says, words which once had a good meaning are now used in vulgar or a ludicrous sense. 
Now consider, for example, the word gay. Therefore, he says, the church, enlightened by the Holy Ghost, has chosen a language which is not liable to such changes. Since Latin is no longer a spoken language, it is, you know, uh, uh, preserved in amber, so to speak. So when you say something in Latin, it's, it's very clear what's meant. And besides which, uh, he points out that the sermons and instructions are always, you know, given to the people in the language of the country. Also, the priests would typically read the epistle and the gospel in the vernacular before the sermon. And of course, once upon a time, the ordinary of the Mass uh, was translated in almost every Catholic prayer book. And so there wasn't any disadvantage to the, the Catholic worshiper in the fact that Mass was celebrated in Latin. And especially, Father Mueller says, since the pastors of the Church are very careful to instruct their flocks on the nature of that great sacrifice following the injunctions of the Council of Trent, and to explain to them in what manner they should accompany the officiating priest with prayers and devotions best adapted to every portion of the Mass, and I would say best adapted to the individual worshiper. You know, most old prayer books didn't just have the ordinary of Mass. They would have uh, a, a selection of Mass, or a prayers, right, for the laity to say during the various parts of the Mass. Um, the book, A Brief Catechism for Adults by Father William J. Cogan, was originally published back in 1951. And the first edition of that book was used uh, to catechize tens of thousands of adult converts. And uh, uh, for years, it was practically the standard catechism in the United States and Canada for that purpose. My RCIA class used a, a revised version of that same catechism with uh, references to the Catechism of the Catholic Church uh, when I came into the church in the 1990s. But in the old edition, uh, in the section on the worship of God, it says, and I quote, one cannot set down, I'll begin again, <laughs> one cannot lay down set rules about how to pray at Mass, because the Mass may be followed word for word, as in the Missal, or in spirit, according to what's going on in the various parts of the Mass, or by practicing one's private devotion. Unquote. That's why when Paul VI uh, imposed the new Mass on the Church, he said, quote, we shall notice that pious persons are disturbed the most because they already have their own respectable way of hearing Mass. So, so why did Paul VI think it was so important to change from Latin to the vernacular? He himself said, we have reason indeed for regret, reason almost for bewilderment. What can we put in the place of that language of the angels? We're giving up something of priceless worth, but why? What's more precious than these loftiest of our church's values. And his answer, which he admitted was banal and prosaic, was simply that understanding prayer is worth more than the silken garments in which it is royally dressed, which is actually a shot at what John XXIII said in uh, Viterum Sapientia. He says, participation is worth more, particularly participation by modern people, so fond of plain language, which is easily understood and converted into everyday speech, unquote. I'm sorry, but um, a cynical man might say that any average Catholic had no trouble at all understanding the prayers of the Mass that were printed in his Missal or Prayer Book. Uh or that millions upon millions of Catholics who came to Mass each Sunday to pour out their hearts to God, while, while the priests performed the once-and-for-all sacrifice of Christ, understood their own prayers very well indeed. 
I dare say that a cynical man might wonder if the real reason for dumbing down the mass, accompanied by an enforced uniformity of thought and action, was really a matter of getting Catholics to accept a novel understanding of the Catholic faith, a a new paradigm, if you will. A coercive, officially enforced rupture with the past that was both unwanted and unneeded. Well, that's what a cynical man might say. Or simply one who laments the fact that millions upon millions of heartfelt prayers now go unsaid. As a remnant of Catholics who were not chased away by the new liturgy recite in unison trivialized prayers in ever-changing translations projected on giant screens to serve the lowest common denominator. Guardians of tradition indeed. But, But that would be a cynical man. Last month, Philip Lawler, who is not a cynical man, posted an article on Catholic Culture uh, website called What Active Participation Really Means. He said, Since Vatican II, liturgists have given us a lot to do. But active participation does not mean giving people something to do, something extrinsic to the real action. And he's talking about the the responses and the sign of peace and, and on and on. Active participation, he says, means being absorbed in that action. Active participation in the Mass means becoming absorbed in Christ's sacrifice. Active participation flows from the realization that we, the laity, are not the central actors. Yes, we are coming together as a community, but what binds us together is our shared status as pilgrims on that path. The Mass will be celebrated whether we are there or not, whether we are distracted or not. Christ's saving sacrifice will be consummated with or without us. We only choose whether or not we want to be united to that sacrifice. Unquote. And this is a man who attends the Novus Ordo. And speaking of which, in, in the Novus Ordo general instruction of the Roman Missal, it says that Christ is present in four ways at the Mass. In the Word, when it is proclaimed. In the priest who celebrates in Persona Christi, most especially in the Blessed Sacrament and in the congregation when they pray or sing. In that list, there's only one item that's not strictly necessary. Can't have Mass without the Word. Obviously, you can't have Mass without the priest or the sacrament. But you don't need the congregation. And so the prayers don't need to be in English because they're directed to God and and not the people. Traditional Catholics understand that that priests are are representatives of Jesus Christ, the, the great high priest, that they're divinely commissioned by virtue of their ordination to consecrate and offer sacrifice and to administer, uh, administer the sacraments, to become, as St. Paul says in Scripture, the ministers of Christ and dispensers of the mysteries of God. And, and a perfect understanding of those mysteries is impossible, regardless of the language, because they are mysteries. When a Catholic priest stands at the altar, even if he offers the sacrifice alone, He stands there as a mediator between God and the people. He stands in the place of Christ. He has an office to perform which the people have nothing to do with him or for him as as assistants or or concelebrants. In a word, he has a sacrifice to offer, which is an act that passes between God and himself, to complete which, or to render more acceptable, no assistance of the people is necessary. He offers it, indeed, for the people and in company with them. But they do not have any part in offering it, 
in the strict sense of the word, for the character of the priest is essentially distinct and separate from that of the layman, and nothing marks this distinction so absolutely as the power of offering sacrifice, which is his exclusive right. Traditional Catholics know that the holy sacrifice of the Mass is the self-same sacrifice that Jesus Christ offered to his Father on the cross, precisely because both the priest and the victim are the same. And their faith in the real presence is abundantly sufficient to enkindle devotion in their hearts and to excite their souls uh, to acts appropriate uh, of adoration and thanksgiving and repentance, though they may not understand a word of the prayers that the priest is uttering. And many of the prayers in the traditional Latin Mass for millennia were uttered in silence. And this is why the faithful flocked to the sacred mysteries for millennia, never thinking of the language in which they were being celebrated. And so for traditional Catholics today, some come to lay their sorrows at the feet of Jesus, others to ask for some special grace or mercy. Some feel compelled to go to Mass to proclaim their gratitude because they know that there's nothing so worthy of being offered to God as the body and blood of his Son, and, and on a host of other reasons known only in the secrets of their hearts. It's at the Holy Mass that they can ab- hope to obtain salvation for the living and rest for the dead. So Father Muller says, Pity those who do not know this heavenly sacrifice. What a misfortune to see one driven from this Eden and yet do nothing to obtain the favor of readmittance. How unhappy, too, are those Catholics who, though knowing it, by their unpardonable indifference, deprive themselves of this inexhaustible mine of inestimable riches. Truer words were never spoken. Yet there's much cause for hope, because while attendance at the vernacular liturgy of Paul VI continues to shrink, attendance at the traditional Mass continues to grow. And that's no nonsense. All right, uh, we've done it again. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week, same time, same channel, or whenever it is that you listen to this podcast on any of the many platforms available or at vmpr.org. Uh, And I uh, ask you to go to vmpr.org, especially in these final weeks of the year 2022. And uh, if it's possible, make a donation there. Hit the Donate Now button and uh, help to support us financially as well as with your prayers. We need both desperately. Uh, And until next time, this is Matthew Arnold for Virgin Most Powerful Radio saying, thanks for listening, and may God richly bless you and your family.